I am swapping between mics, sorry about that. This is a long one, so bear with me. Uh, Exodus chapter 1, uh, to chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each of his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Neph Nephtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 20 in all. 70 in all, sorry. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too much, uh, much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour, and they built... Pithom and Rathesis as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they repressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labour in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra, Shifra and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them in the delivery stool, it is a boy, kill them, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave their families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave his order to all his people, Every boy that is born you must throw into Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man in the house of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him with, uh, for me, and I will pay you. 
So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to the expounding of your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be with each and every one of us, that you may teach us the things that you desire to teach us and reinforce those things that we know, that, that we may become more closer to you and understand you more, and all of this for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Most of us know the story of the Exodus because it's a wonderful story about the providence of God, the way he delivered his people and the way he delivered them from cruel slavery. It's a story of how the weak, the powerless with God overcame the powerful, the strong and the mighty of this world. Somebody once said, and you probably heard this saying, that God plus one is all you need. And if you ever look at church history, you'll find that that's true. There's been cases throughout history, sometimes where one man, like Martin Luther, uh, way back there was Van Corderius, who stood up against the whole of the church when it was wrong, and with God on their side, his side, they've been able to triumph. And this too is a story of God's chosen people, how with God on their side, they triumphed it. But I want to look at a specific situation this time where Israel was made to come under slavery, or God's people made to come under slavery. And I want us to imagine that we're, as best we can, that we're in that situation that we see in chapter 1, that we've just had read to us and chapter 2 about the uh, birth of Moses, which was also in that situation of slavery and a very nasty time, if you like, for the Jewish people. Now, the puzzling thing about this particular time of suffering for the Jews was that there's no mention in Scripture that it was ever deserved. It's not as if God, like in the time when they were sent out to Babylon in exile, because of their sins and their worshipping of other gods and idolatry, there's no record that they had done anything to deserve this. In, in fact, um, I actually titled this sermon, I know it hasn't come on the pew sheet, is the question, where is God in all of this? And the reason I've done that is because, and chosen this passage, we live in a world today where there are great tensions. There's great tension between the USA and China and Australia. Uh, there's great tension too, as we know, with the war in Ukraine and all that's going on there. So I've asked this question, where is God in all this? Uh, I just want to also give an example where after the last election, when Dan Andrews uh, came into power, one of the elders in our church we were talking together 
And, and I said, well, and he wasn't happy about it, and I said, well, God is in charge. And he come back with, yeah, but. Um, and I know what he meant. We live in situations at times, we know God's in charge, we know things will come out all right in the end, but how do we cope while we live through it? That's the question. It's easy enough to say what I said to him, God is in charge, it's been said to me too, but how do we live through difficult situations? And this was one of the situations that God's people found themselves in at the time of Exodus. Now, as I said, the puzzling thing was that the, the suffering was not deserved. And the question is asked, why does God allow those that he has chosen to suffer in such a way? Here were the Jewish people. They, they were called out from Abraham. And God had promised him, you're making them into a great nation. And he had made covenant promises with them, a covenant promise. And you may ask the question, why do they have to suffer when there's no record that they've done anything wrong? After all, they were in Egypt by divine command. And they were under a divine promise. And and they were waiting at the time while they were in Egypt for divine intervention. And yet what happens, they find themselves in cruel slavery. And one thing about being one of God's people means that you can't, uh, sorry, you don't have any immunity from trouble or suffering, even when that suffering may appear to be unfair. Now we too as Christians are God's people uh, and we suffer and, and again we ask that question why? Now sometimes we have to be honest and say, It is because of our sinfulness. We're brought it upon ourselves. And we may understand why, but quite often we don't understand why. We don't understand why friends have to suffer. Or we don't have to, we don't understand why a nation like Ukraine is suffering and so forth. And we see this great suffering through the world and particularly with God's people. Now, again, the passage never tells us that the Israelites were sent to Egypt for punishment. But God doesn't explain himself. In fact, he doesn't have to explain himself. If he does, that's because he chooses to. But he doesn't explain himself. And what, what he does tell us in Scripture, in Isaiah, is that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. And so we can't really understand everything unless he reveals to it, chooses to reveal to us why and what he is doing. Sometimes it's just the what and not the why. But when we look at Genesis to Exodus up to the birth of Moses and the events that surrounded his birth, we can see that God works out his own schemes in his own way, what we call God's providence. He doesn't in his own time, according to his own wisdom and plan. And even though his people may go through some dark and terrible times, we can be assured that at the very end, that God is the one who has planned it and it will end up well 
for in all these things he has a purpose. We know ultimately Christ will come again. But even in these situations, as we live through them, we need to realise that God does have a purpose and it will end up right in the end. Now, first of all, God's people at that time were in the right place at the right time. They were where God wanted them to be. It may not have been for every single Israelite, especially when they're in slavery, that they wanted to be there. I know myself, I wouldn't want to be there at the time, but it's where God wanted them to be. For he'd actually told Jacob, he said, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you. Now here we see that God had told Jacob to go to Egypt. And he actually says to them, I will go down there with you. He didn't just say, go, and that's it. He said, I'm going to go down to Egypt with you. And he made this great promise that they would become a great nation. So first of all, they were in the right place at the right time because God had planned it that way. Now, if the persecution that they faced came as a surprise to them, it was really because they hadn't listened to God's word or read the scriptures that they would have had at that time. God had told Abraham that he would give them the land that he was a resident alien in, in other words, a stranger at the time. But he said, I'm not going to give it to you at this time, in other words, in your time. And he actually says that his people would have to wait And during that waiting time, he says, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. He does actually tell them. He doesn't tell them why. He just tells them what's going to happen to what. Now, he makes it clear, really, that these difficult times they're going to endure would be part of his plan. Yet it's easy for us to read these verses and say, yes, what they went through is part of God's plan. But as I said before, to actually live through that situation is quite another thing. Now, we can only imagine the cruelty and misery that they went through. Many people would have lost their lives through that cruelty. Now, I can't imagine how difficult it is for Christian brethren in Ukraine today. I know that um, one Baptist pastor there, a missile hit his house and blew it up. Fortunately, he was safe. And the comment I got when I told someone was, oh, that's a pity or that's bad. I hate hearing that because it means you've got no idea what that's like. We have no idea, I think, the missile hit our home and it was demolished unless you've been in that situation. And... um, I thought to myself when I um, read that and heard about it that um, how would I feel if I was in that situation? I know that that pastor believes that what he's going through is part of God's plan. But where it fits in, how to live through it, can be another thing. And, And I must say I admire he and his church and other Christian brethren there who are going for those things and ask that you pray for them. 
Now, sorry, I'll just keep my thought here. Uh, as I said, I can't imagine what it's like, in, for example, in Ukraine today. Now, they're caught in the midst of this terrible war. Now, it's easy for us to read the papers, as upsetting as it can be, or watch it on multimedia, the things that are happening. But what they must endure, be enduring, I can only imagine in my mind how extremely difficult it is because I'm not living through it. And I'm sure that for many of them at the time, the question is why is on their lips. Even when they pray, it's, Lord, why are we going through this? Why, why is our nation suffering this way? Or why is this nation that I'm working in and helping suffering in this way? And Genesis 15, when we go to it, makes it clear that not only was everything going according to God's plan for the Israelites, but in the end, he does say that everything would turn out all right. For he says this, I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. And when the children of Israel were allowed to go out, and, and the exodus actually happened, the Egyptians actually gave them great amounts of gold and wealth. They came out as a great nation, many people, and also about three million, we think, and they were extremely wealthy as they went out. And God did fulfil his promises, as he always does. And eventually, as I say, they were delivered from their slavery, given that great wealth. And as God had said, I'll go down to Egypt with you. But he also said, I will bring you back. He says, actually, I will surely bring you back. Now, when the Apostle Stephen was on trial in Acts, he said these words, that Moses received living words to pass on to us. And what he's saying there is that the words of Moses are just as relevant today in the Old Testament as they were in the time before the Exodus, in the time after the Exodus. Because the Bible is the living word. It's not just a story of past events, but its lessons are, are relevant for today. In fact, what happened in the Old Testament has been written for us today that we can learn from them. And those of us who are in Christ are God's people. And just like the children of Israel, we will endure persecution. We'll endure hardships. We'll endure sufferings. We'll endure sorrows. Now, again, as I said, God doesn't answer why. But he does assure us that everything in his providence has been planned and I said, we'll turn out well. But as God's people, we, we experience things without explanation. We go through adversity, which seems to have no purpose. We experience even hostility without any protection. And I can imagine, for example, the Israelites back then saying things like that. One, where is God in all this? After all, God, 
Yes, you said we would be strangers in another country and ill-treated for 400 years, but why? What have we done to deserve that? Now, I can think of a theological answer, but I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, you said that the nation that did this would be punished. Now, imagine you're in that situation before this happened. For you promised Abraham many years ago, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. But at the time, if you're looking around, you've got a slave master whipping you, you may not have felt that that was ever going to happen. And he may have continued, you promised that eventually we would leave this nation and come out with great wealth. But how can I endure this? And some of them, quite possibly, or a number would have died before that happened. He could have said, God, you also promised that you would make us a great nation and, and go down into Egypt with us. Yes, we've increased in number, in greatness, but we're slaves and we're suffering. What's so great about that? He promised you would bring us back, but will I ever see that day? And what I want to do also is look at the background of what actually happened in Egypt at that time. Why were they persecuted historically? Now, originally, while Joseph was alive, um, for many years afterwards, the people of Israel were treated well by the Egyptians. And God had kept his covenant promise to Abraham by greatly multiplying his descendants and blessing them. As I said, there were estimated 3 million Jews by the time of Moses. And later on, we're told a new Pharaoh came. But he wasn't happy with the rapid growth of the Jewish people. And he tried to stop it. And people often say, why did that happen? When you look at the biblical account, what we know from history, uh, for a time, Egypt was ruled by foreigners who were called the Hykos. And they ruled in what was called the 17th dynasty. Now these people were actually not Egyptian, they were foreigners. They'd invaded, they'd taken over, and um, they ruled Egypt for quite some time. As I said, they were foreigners. In other words, they were foreigners like the Jews. And that's possibly, we think, why... Uh, that, that these were the people who were sympathetic to them. But in the 18th dynasty, uh, the pharaoh that came there, they'd expelled the foreigners, the Hykos, out of Egypt and their policy was not to have foreigners in the land. And this may have been the dynasty that began the persecution of the Jewish people. And when you look at it, the Pharaoh at this time said that the presence of so many Jews was possibly a security risk. That's how they saw them. Now, some people say that's an excuse uh, to treat, mistreat them. Uh, others, no doubt, you've seen in history many dictators, if there's a rapid growth of a certain ethnic group, we've seen where there's been ethnic cleansing going on and they try to get rid of these people. And that's really what happened to the Jews. As we know, it's happened many, sadly in many other cases. But in this case, this new Pharaoh that we believe was the one in his dynasty that persecuted them. 
And he felt, again, if Egypt was invaded, he feared that the Jews would side with the enemy, even though there's no proof of that. So what the, the Egyptians did, they put slave masters over the Jews to oppress them with forced labour, and they worked them ruthlessly. The Hebrew literally means to bring them low. And, and, to, and uh, the word ruthlessly is not actually found in the Hebrew of the Bible, but it's found in the other Semitic languages around them, and it means to display violence. And in other words, not only bring them low, but to violently bring them low, treat them with violence to, to degrade them. And we know that they made life bitter for the Israelites, making them, with brick, making them work with bricks and mortar and out in the fields. And the interesting thing is how God keeps his promises in all this. When this didn't, this didn't work, because their numbers actually kept on growing, even with this severe persecution. Pharaoh then told the Hebrew midwives which always amazes me, here were Hebrew midwives, he goes and tells them to kill the Jewish boys when they were born. Um, now, we, had this worked, the Jews would have been wiped out, the girls would have intermarried with Egyptian slaves and been absorbed into the Egyptian race. But this didn't work either. In fact, we're told that they still kept on growing as a nation. And the reason it didn't work these midwives feared God and they actually disobeyed Pharaoh. When he asked them why they disobeyed him, they simply said that the Hebrew women were more vigorous than the Egyptian women and gave birth before we arrived. Some commentators actually say that probably true or half true, we don't know. But when, again, that didn't work, they kept on growing, Pharaoh ordered his people to help in making sure that the Jewish male babies were drowned in the Nile River. In other words, Pharaoh used a number of strategies to destroy the Israelite people. And we've seen that in the genocide of nations today in similar ways. First of all, he tried political cunning. Uh, the ver Verse 10 where it says that they... Dealt, he said that we had to deal with them shrewdly and also has been translated let us outsmart them another way of looking at it so he tried political cunning the second thing he tried was force he ordered the slave masters to oppress and work the Jews ruthlessly, cruelly thirdly he tried secret manipulation by saying to the midwives kill the male babies when they're born now, failing all this, he tried, and we, as I said, we see this today, in, whether we've seen it in Hitler or other dictators throughout history, tried to conjure up popular feeling by getting his people to side and on side of him and dob in whenever a Jewish boy was born so that that boy could be drowned in the Nile. Now, there's something else that he used that we miss um, from our culture and probably from our lack of understanding of the culture of the time. He actually used religion. Now, you might stare at me and say, what do you mean religion? It doesn't say that there. 
when he talked about throwing the children into the Nile River, the Nile River was considered the great god of Egypt, one of the great gods in Egypt. And by doing that, there's probably the belief that this god would absorb these babies and save the, um, the, uh, the Egyptian nation. But either way, it was seen as a god when he threw, and he was going to throw these babies into what they saw as a god of Egypt. Now, all of these attempts failed. They were foiled by God, and they were foiled by him in his own way. Now, the question comes back, where was God in all of this? We know that when the Egyptians became enslaved, the more they were oppressed, the more they were multiplied and spread. In the church and church history, there's a saying, by the blood of the martyrs, the church grows. The more the church has actually been persecuted, the more it actually grows. Many may die, many may be martyred, but in actual fact, you'll find the church will grow. Um, and so, in fact, the church grew so, uh, sorry, the Israelites grew so much that the Egyptians were told, it says, came to dread the Israelites. That's why they treated them more ruthlessly. But it's interesting, they actually started to fear them. And when Pharaoh tried to use the midwives to do his dirty work, and they feared God more than man, even though he's probably the most powerful man at that time, at least in that area, we're told that the Jews became even more numerous. And what God did, he actually gave the midwives families as well. So they would have increased, he blessed them by doing that, they would have increased the Israelite nation as well. Now when Pharaoh tried to get his people to assist in the genocide of the infant boys, God, through the saving of one of those boys, and there was probably many that were saved, we don't know, God sent a deliverer in the form of a baby boy, a boy that Pharaoh, we know, could never kill, and that was Moses. In fact, later, God fulfilled another promise to Abraham. God punished e Egypt and Pharaoh through a series of plagues that accumulated in the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt because they wouldn't listen to what Moses had said. God does keep his promise. Now Moses' parents were of the tribe of Levi. They were called Amram and Jochebed. Now, although we see Moses' mother mainly mentioned in the scriptures in Exodus 2, Hebrews 11.23 commends both of the parents, for it says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were afraid of the king's edict. But when it became too dangerous, we know that they hid him. And Jochebed, his mother, we're told, got a papyrus basket for him, uh, coated it with tar and pitch, if I remember rightly, the Hebrew word is actually ark, same as used in Noah's ark. Uh, then they, uh, she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. 
He was actually saved, that's the irony, by the Nile River, which the Egyptians saw as a god. Now, later, uh, Pharaoh's own daughter found Moses, and when she saw him crying in a basket, we're told she felt sorry for him. And she even went as far as adopting Moses as her own son. Uh, Miriam, who was Moses' older sister, saw what was happening when uh, the baby was saved and she was able to secure Moses' mother as the wet nurse, if you like, or his nurse as he grew up. And when he grew older, older Jochebed took Moses to, to the princess, no doubt after he was weaned, and he became her adopted son, which meant he had all the rights of an Israel prince. He would have been trained and educated in their art sciences and even military arts. So how does all this apply to us today in situations that we find ourselves in? In all that happened to God's people, as we can see, God was working his purposes out. And what this teaches us today is that our faith should be a trusting faith even in difficult circumstances. For underpinning everything that happens to God's people is his providence at work. God never goes to sleep. He never is. His providence is one that always provides. It's always purposeful. It's always of his wisdom, not our wisdom. And it's always ultimately on the side of his people. We're told in Romans 8, 28, that tells us, we know that in all things that God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It even tells us, even if we suffer death, it won't separate us from the love of God. Even the principalities of the evil universe cannot take us away from that love of God. In other words, God will fulfil in us individually and collectively his purpose. The other thing is our faith should be an expectant faith. If God can preserve his people of old through, through the midwives who feared God rather than man, even though that man was a powerful king, uh, if he can use the disobedience of Moses' mother to spare Moses, even use the Nile River as strong and powerful as it was. And he can use the compassionate heart of Pharaoh's daughter when we remember her father was a hardened person who was willing to commit genocide on Moses' nation. There's nothing that can stop God from fulfilling his will. He's even able to subject the power of his enemies and use that turn it round to his eternal purpose. He actually changed, when you look at it, Pharaoh's household from a house of a destroyer to a house of a, to save his deliverer. He used Moses' sister Miriam to arrange for his mother's, uh, to nurse him, his own mother, who no doubt was able to use that time to instil in him and teach him the truth about the true God, uh, what pe which people he belonged to, and the destiny of his own people. 
And no doubt he later used Moses to deliver his people from Egypt, having been trained in the ways of the Egyptians and educated. And in all of this, God provided for his people. And our faith like them should be an expectant faith, knowing that he will act in his own way and time. But, and this is the hardest part, I know it's the hardest part for me, is that our faith should be patient, a patient faith. God promised his people way back, I will go down to Egypt with you and I'll surely bring you back again. As I said before, he did this in his own time, his own way, with perfect justice and patience. And we too need that patience. And we can really only get that patience through prayer and reading God's word and relying on him, enabling his spirit to strengthen us. And we have wonderful promises that I want to end with in scripture. In Hebrews 6.12 it tells us that we do... The writer actually says, we don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When we have faith, we have patience, we inherit what has been promised. Psalm 34 says, the Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. And that's what we do in difficult times. Our refuge may not be in anything in this world, but our uh, refuge is always with the Lord. And finally, we have this assurance from Jesus himself. He said, My sheep know my voice, and I know them. Sorry, I'll study it. My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, No one can snatch them out of my hand. That's a wonderful promise that we have. Our refuge is in Christ. He, we know his voice, we listen to it when we read the scriptures and follow him. And he is the one who has given us eternal life. And ultimately, no matter what happens in this life, we have eternal life for no one can snatch us from his hands. He will fulfil his promise. So let us have the patience and the faith to follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have that wonderful assurance. That assurance that no matter what we see happening in the world, no matter how intimidating, no matter what happens to us, whether it's through illness, through loss of job, or or whatever else may happen, even the threat of death or death itself, we know that we're not separated by your love. And we know, Father, that you have a heavenly purpose, which ultimately means we'll spend eternity with you. For we know that we can never be snatched from your hand. And for this we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.